Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello, hello, you're listening to Movie Oubliette, the cross-hemisphere film review podcast with me, Dan, listening to old cassette tapes and mostly cringing with embarrassment in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, listening to my vinyl collection and enjoying the warmth of that analogue sound in Cambridge, UK. Oh, in this podcast, we discuss long-lost genre films, sci-fi, fantasy and horror, because museums are fun, especially when they have a killer chimera bounding around in them. <laughs> Conrad, <laughs> how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing? Yeah, it's getting cold and I complain about it because that's what Australians <laughs> yes. do. <laughs> oh, well, at least it gives you an excuse to stay indoors by the fire and listen to those cassette tapes. What's that all about? <laughs> yeah, so I've recently uh, gotten hold of a big box of cassette tapes from my childhood. So a whole bunch of oh, wow. music and uh mostly cringy recordings of me in high school and uh, university oh, as well. Wow. I've got flute <laughs> practice in there. I, I even found one tape that's got physics study notes, me reciting oh. <laughs> like formulas <laughs> for like exams. Well, that could have sample value, you never know. Yeah, well, I am going to be turning all of this into um, sort of a hip-hop EP. So, yeah, it's it's been, mm. yeah, surreal, but embarrassing. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I've got like that is a tape that my brother and I made together where we would record the TV themes of our favourite shows oh. by just holding a cassette recorder next to the television. And for some reason, we felt the need to announce each theme before it starts. So I've just got this tape cassette that just has things on it like, and now, Knight Rider. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> With these piping high voices that clearly <laughs> haven't broken yet. <laughs> oh, wow. So, Conrad, any mailbag today? Yes, we got some lovely mailbag. We had some interaction on Facebook when I was posting the poster from Flight of the Navigator and pointing out that there are two Puck Marins mm. in the poster rather than one, which makes no sense yeah. whatsoever. <laughs> and so I asked if anybody had ever noticed this and we got a reply from Kerry Ann Rogers who said, I was in the movie and never noticed it. <laughs> wow, it's <laughs> <That's> amazing. <laughs> and I looked her up and she is Jennifer Bradley, the girl that David is spying on through his telescope. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I re replied to her and said, oh, wow, Jennifer Bradley, I hope you don't have any guys spying on you through telescopes. <laughs> and she said, laugh out loud, no, not anymore. Well, at least I hope not. <laughs> 
that's great. Yes, that's great. It's good to hear from her. And we also heard from uh, Nick, who emailed us. Yay! We Send us emails at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. We love getting emails. And he says, Hi, guys. Hope you're both keeping safe. Just wanted to share a couple of things that happened this week while listening to the podcast. So he's been eagerly going through our back catalogue, it turns out. And he says, A few days ago, I was listening to Ewok's Battle for Endor, a film I thought I'd seen in the 80s, but it turns out I must have seen the other one, the crap one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And he says, All the way through the episode when you were talking about Wilfred Brimley, I was picturing... Wilford Bramble, who plays Albert Steptoe in Steptoe and Son, which you may not know, Dan. It's a British sitcom of a certain vintage. It's even before my time, if you can imagine that. So when you were describing the scenes in the movie, I was imagining Albert Steptoe arguing with Ewoks, (laughs) which, yeah, British people will know this makes no sense whatsoever. And then he says, this morning I went for another run while listening to the Black Sheep episode. Very entertaining episode. I remember the movie fondly. My running route takes me in a circuit around the moorland and farmland on the edge of Dartmoor in Devon. As I was listening to the podcast, I realised I was running down lanes entirely surrounded by sheep. Oh, wow. (laughs) Scary. With the sheep particularly vocal, it lent an extra dimension to the listening experience, and I think it put an extra step in my run. Oh, wow. Yeah, get out of there. (laughs) Yeah, I think that would be particularly unnerving. Yes. (laughs) Anyway, there's a great email, Nick. Thanks for listening and thanks for sending that in. Mm, Thank you. And, of course, we also heard from Surge of Cold Crash Pictures, Hello, Serge. Hey, Serge. He rendered his verdict on winter kills, which we were both <laughs> eagerly awaiting, I think. Yeah. He says, it's odd. I didn't like winter kills for all the same reasons many people say it's bad, but I wouldn't go so far as to call it a bad film. It seems to tell the exact kind of story it wants to tell, where confusion and disappointment are key themes. It's just not my jam right now. Oh. Hmm. I aspire to Serge's clarity and reasonableness. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. It sounds like a political (laughs) response to a film. (laughs) There are arguments on both sides. Yeah. Well, I wonder if today's movie will prove divisive. Wow. I'll just go fetch it. Oh, no. It's flooded. Did you bring your wellies? I think I forgot them. And what's that sound? Oh, that's just me. I forgot my asthma inhaler. Phew, that's a relief. <laughs> I'm just going to fish the movie out of the murky water. Ah. Hey, there's some cool stairs <laughs> over here. Welcome back. What do you have for us? I have the 1997 creature feature, The Relic, mm. directed by Peter Himes, based on a novel by Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child, with four screenwriters. Uh, this movie stars Penelope Ann Miller, Tom Sizemore, Linda Hunt, James Whitmore, Clayton Rona, and Chi Moi Lo. And what happens in it? Well, in The Relic. Margot is an evolutionary biologist of a Chicago museum. Vincent is a hard-boiled, no-nonsense police lieutenant. 
But when a security guard turns up decapitated and ripped open in the museum bathroom, their lives collide. (laughs) This is a story of chimeras, ancient gods, fungal hormones, and the culinary (laughs) delights of the hypothalamus. (laughs) And why not throw in a museum gala for added hijinks and human slaughter? (laughs) Who knew evolutionary biology was so action-packed? Will the relic turn up the heat, or will it fizzle like a wet candle? Let's find out. Ooh, exciting. And we'll be joined by not one, but two guests. Wow, it's going to be a party up in here. (laughs) We'll be back soon. Our special guests today are the co-writers of Bloody Disgusting's insightful and entertaining queer horror column and co-hosts of its binge-worthy podcast incarnation. Separately, they are Joe Lipsit and Trace Thurman, but together they are the Horror Queers. (laughs) Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you so much. We're excited to talk 90s creature feature trash. Hey. (laughs) Hey. (laughs) So how are you guys doing in lockdown? How's it treating you? I am doing okay. Yeah, it's been probably about six weeks for me, but more or less my husband and I haven't killed each other, so that's (laughs) got to be some kind of plus. Ideal. Yeah, Yeah, us too. We're finding new, I mean, as everyone is, I'm sure, finding new ways to connect with people. So it's a lot of Zoom calls, um, a lot of going to grassy fields wearing masks and putting our chairs like six feet apart and drinking together. But yeah, I mean, it's sometimes good, sometimes not good. Yeah. Sounds so civilized. (laughs) I'm talking to people that I haven't talked to in years just because. Me too. I'm uh, reconnecting with friends from uni that I didn't even know. Was still around, still around, kind of thing. <laughs> you're like, oh, you're alive. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you guys are in two different countries. How did you guys meet? So I've been writing for um, the horror website Bloody Disgusting for about uh, since like end of 2014, and I want to say it was around late 2017 when uh, Joe basically reached out and was like, "Hey, like, you're gay." I'm gay. We both write for Bloody Disgusting. We both like horror. Let's write about queer horror for Bloody Disgusting. Mm. So we started an article series in early 2018 where, uh, what is it called, Joe? An epistolary? Yes. Okay. I know, <laughs> whenever he pitched the idea of our articles, he was like, it's an epistolary format. And I was like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> but basically, we just pick a movie. And yeah, it's basically the podcast in written form where, um, you know, he'll write like, an intro about the film, like 700 words, then I'll respond to it. And then he'll respond to me and then I'll close out the article. And about halfway through 2018, like in the summer, he was like, so we should do a podcast. And I was like, I don't know how to do that. So I don't want to do it. (laughs) He kept bringing it up and bringing it up and bringing it up. And I was like, okay, if you can figure out everything, I will do it with you. And we still do the articles, but um, yeah, we premiered the podcast in um, January of 2019. We've been going for about a year and a half now talking I want to say pretty much every day. Wow. <laughs> yes. If we weren't both already married, we'd probably be dating by now. Because <laughs> that's basically like he's like my second husband. More or less. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, so, and that's just kind of how it happened. And it's been real fun. You know, it's like a nice weekly, sometimes 
twice weekly treat because we also do a Patreon where um so we do like four full length episodes plus like a bunch of Patreon content for people who like are willing to pay for our thoughts and voices, which is really fun. Well, uh-huh. I mean, I've yeah. been binging the podcast for the last week or so in preparation for this, and uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fantastic. I've really been enjoying it. So I love the combination of a lot of depth in terms of your analysis and production history, the background that you go into, mm. and just how much fun you both are as well. So definitely worth checking out for all of our listeners if you haven't uh, mm. come across them already. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we're both very different and have very different tastes. So I, I'd like to think that we complement each other well and we bring different things to the table. Yeah, for sure. Mm. So all of us by now are used to being scared of gathering in large numbers in public places. (laughs) And now we have a movie to discuss where this proves to be fatal on a massive scale. Uh, The Relic, uh, 1997, oh, the 90s, my favourite decade for movie making, directed by Peter Hyams, based on a very popular book by Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child and one of a series of 19 novels, I think, the first in a series. It's insane. Yeah. Wait, 19? I, I knew there was Relic and I knew there was Reliquary, mm. but I thought that was it. <laughs> <laughs> so the main character in the original novel, or I think he's a supporting character, but he ended up being the main character as a detective that doesn't show up in the movie adaptation at all. <laughs> oh, wow. Yes, the Tom Sizemore character is apparently both characters from the book combined into one. Right. Ah. Oh my God, but he's so boring. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess you guys don't find the whole movie boring. You picked it for us. I was wondering if you could kick us off by telling us why you picked it and what your relationship with this movie is. So Trace and I are both very big fans of creature features and most specifically aquatic horror, which you could technically classify this as a aquatic horror in brief. In my notes, when they're in the tunnels, I was like, aquatic horror! (laughs) (laughs) Vindication! But one of the things that we both really (laughs) like about Creature Features is just the fact that you get to see a bunch of different types of monsters. And in this case, like, it's a little unusual to see a Creature Feature actually take place in a metropolis unless you're talking about something like Alligator or Mm. something more ridiculous like that. But uh, my personal history with The Relic is my sister got me into horror, so she took me through a gamut of 90s and late 80s horror when we were growing up. And The Relic was a personal favorite of both of ours just because it's such an utterly ridiculous film. Like, I, I unabashedly love it. I recognize a lot of people probably look at the film and think that it's kind of, well, Trace, I think you said that it was a creature feature trash film, which is probably fair. (laughs) You know, it's different, though, because it takes itself very seriously. Kind of. But then you have like that kooky mortician lady who's like fucking throwing out blowjob jokes while she's investigating a severed head. (laughs) It's funny, though, because I feel like not a lot of people talk about this movie, but I mean, I posted that I was watching this on Twitter yesterday and I had so many people reply say how good the the movie is and how much they love it so i think it's just one of those films that has a cult following but it's just not as vocal as something for like let's say anaconda or deep blue sea is Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i would attribute that partly because there's not really anyone famous in it yeah yeah i remember when we were talking about it i asked joe i was like who is penelope ann miller 
honestly, the only thing I know her from is the love interest in Kindergarten Cop. Yes. Right. <laughs> Where she also co-starred with Linda Hunt. She's in yes. both movies. <laughs> but, like, if you ask me anything Tom Sizemore is in, I could not tell you. I looked him up, and I was looking at all these movies, and I was like, these are not movies that I would ever watch. So that explains why I don't know who this person is. <laughs> yeah, he does a lot of bad action movies. Playing more or less the same character, he's usually a very grumpy man. <laughs> well, so is the director, though. Peter Hyams, like, again, I was trying to figure out what he'd done before, and it's not a ton of stuff, but... Uh, excuse you. Excuse <laughs> you. I'm looking at this filmography, and they are great movies, sir. <laughs> okay, wait, wait, wait. I have three movies that, like, jumped out at me, and it was Time Cop, yes. Sudden Death, uh-huh. and A Sound okay. of Thunder. Oh, you're overlooking End of Days, which is Arnold Schwarzenegger's big return to movies after his heart attack. <laughs> wait, okay, so <laughs> End of Days, I've never seen, but so I grew up very Catholic, and I remember when my, my mom rented it. My mom, like, grew up in the backwoods Louisiana, like none Catholic schools, whatever. She watched it by herself and then basically said, if you watch End of Days, you're going to go to hell. And so I've just never pulled the trigger on it. <laughs> I love stories about your mom. Right. <laughs> she's much better now. She moved to a big city with my dad and now she's like, you know. She's walked it back a little. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. But he's also got some pretty amazing stuff in the 80s, like um, 2010, a sequel mm-hmm. to 2001, which is a pretty brave undertaking. Yeah. <laughs> Outland with Sean Connery, Capricorn One, which we've covered on our podcast before, sort of a conspiracy sci-fi thriller. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he's never really broken through into the big leagues with some of the other directors that he grew up with. And he tends to be fairly styleless, it has to be said. I mean, I never watch a movie and think, oh, this must be a Peter Hyams movie. Mm. Absolutely not. He comes off as a workman-like director. Like, he will come in, he will make your budget, he will probably deliver you a reasonable product, and then he will disappear into the ether. Mm. Well, and I don't know if he does this for all of his films, but he did the cinematography for this film, and it's not, like, a lot of times you'll see, oh, they get directing and writing credits, or they direct and they also edit the film, but you don't see a lot of directors that also do the cinematography And I just imagine that must be kind of exhausting because at least like with the other things, like you write first, then you direct, you direct first, then you edit. But for this, you're directing and doing the cinematography at the same time. And so it just seems a bit daunting. Yeah. Are his films known to be dark films, like lighting wise? (laughs) Because it was very dark. I mean, End of Days, it seems like it's very fiery and bright. uh, No, End of Days is like dark as fuck. It's it's also kind of a CGI monstrosity, so maybe we're developing some themes here. Well, so apparently a lot of his work is purposefully dimly lit and shadowy. Um, He wanted Relic to be exceptionally dark. Folks did give him notes on the film and said, you might want to lighten it up a bit. But he insisted that the darkness would help the mood. And it was his vision for the film. And I was like, that's great. But in the monster attacks, the darkness coupled with the honestly really rapid fire editing, I couldn't tell what was happening and who was dying. And so many of the men are just blando white guys that look the same to me. Oh yeah. (laughs) So I couldn't tell who was dying and when. So I watched this with my husband, who had never seen the film before. And at one point, he just turned to me and said, what happened to the philanthropists? And I was like, oh, you mean the Blaisdells? 
can't even tell you. I, <laughs> I had to go back and look it up because I realized that their deaths apparently hit the cutting room floor. But I didn't even realize that they hadn't been accounted for because yeah. this film is just filled with white bodies disappearing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Except for the one villainous Asian character. Yes. Oh my uh, gosh. Okay. I'm going to put it on the table. I think this film is a little bit racist. Yeah. <laughs> because it kills the black guy first and then it makes the only other person of color who's a significant character the villain and he's so hissable yeah yeah although it has to be said he's depicted as being greedy for applying for a grant now (laughs) anybody can apply for a grant which is what he says to our main character margot when she complains Mm. about it and throws a hissy fit and screams in the middle of the office all of my people are going to lose their jobs i (laughs) lost it i was like you crazy fucking bitch like (laughs) oh she's so entitled it's kind of hilarious (laughs) (laughs) but i still find her likable though like i actually think as final girls go she's compelling but yeah those introductory scenes do not do her very well i completely agree i think one of the things i like the most about this film especially on a rewatch as an adult and not a teenager is the fact that it technically has two unlikable protagonists because tom sizemore is so gruff and dismissive of everyone and then she's entitled and slightly standoffish because she really just wants to get back to work like she is all business all the time Mm -hmm. even to the point where she doesn't want to go to a fucking gala to wine and dine people to make sure that she can stay in business. It's like, lady, just put on the heels and go downstairs. I really kind of liked her. I mean, yes, sure, she was entitled, but I, I like the fact that she wasn't like a damsel in distress. She could look after herself. She survived the end using her own wits and her own sort of know-how. And I'm so used to 90s movies kind of sexualizing the female character, and yeah. she wasn't sexualized at all. She puts on the dress in darkness. Don't really even see it. <laughs> Can't um, even see your tits. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the mayor would have been very disappointed. Yeah. Well, this kind comes out in 1997, like about nine months before I Know What You Did Last Summer, which, you know, heavily features Jennifer Love Hewitt's bodacious boobies. Mm. Uh, please refer to her by the appropriate name that we have decided on. Jennifer Love Huge Tits? That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> I will say I did have a bit of an uncomfortable moment where her quiet moment of resolution where she says, you know what? Okay, I'm going to fight back against this monster now that my wheelchair mentor has been destroyed in this uh, cage. Yeah, And, it's and like, we don't get to see him die. I felt so rough. We don't even see his body. You know what? I was kind of okay not seeing an old man in a wheelchair get murdered. <laughs> <face>. <laughs> but I will say, I thought it was funny that she's like, okay, I'm all business now. Takes off the heels. Yeah. Mm. That's how you know she's serious. Unlike Bryce Dallas Howard in the Jurassic World movies where she keeps those suckers on through (laughs) thick and thin. (laughs) Which is the more empowering? This is my question. Because Bryce Dallas Howard said that this was a blow for feminism that she keeps the heels on. You know, it's, I mean, even though it's a male director, and I I actually wonder if doing something like that was her decision as an actress. Because I remember like uh, when Birds of Prey came out last year, or earlier this year, I'm sorry. um, There's a moment when Harley throws Black Canary a hair tie because her hair keeps getting in the way when they're fighting and so many people were like oh that's how you can tell like women made this movie because a man wouldn't think to do something like that and so seeing like the heels come off i was like i just wonder if maybe that was her choice to be like listen pete 
I need to take these heels off. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, that sounds like a great choice. I'm actually trying to direct and also act as cinematographer right now. So I'm very busy. (laughs) Also, it's going to be really dark. No one's going to (laughs) tell. So she takes the shoes off. She vanquishes the monster single-handedly. She's not a damsel in distress. We like that. She does have a horrible habit of being told not to enter crime scenes and then doing it anyway and just shrieking and covering her face with her hand in the most comical way I can imagine. That scene, when she walks in and finds the security guard's severed head, I rewound it because it was such a funny moment of physical comedy. I was just like, you're right. It's like she just like she walks in, she's like mid-sentence and breaks off. It's like, (laughs) but also she's so distraught that she then and, like, seemingly can't find her way out of the room. Like, she almost does a 360. And then yeah. she blames um, DeGosta, and she's like, you yeah, could have shut the does. door. Well, he could, he could have shut that door. She worked with that man every day for six years. Let's face it, he deserved everything he got because he lit up a joint in the bathroom. That felt so 80s, right? Mm. Yeah, and while we hear him being dismembered by a monster, the camera just forlornly dollies in on his dropped joint. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Don't smoke weed, kids. Exactly, that's the message here. (laughs) Well, and there's literally two children right nearby. It's like, this is the lesson. Mm. So the beginning of this movie reminds me so much of Mimic, specifically with those two kids. And I think Mimic came out in 1997, too. Yep. When those two kids didn't die, I was like, are you shitting me? <laughs> this is why Mimic wins. Well, this is how you also know that it's an American film, American crew. Because yeah. I immediately looked at it and thought, oh, see, if this was a French film or an Australian film, one or both of these children would be brutally murdered. But mm. no. <laughs> I mean, I didn't really even remember the kids... Like turning up again. No, no, they don't. No, No, they get spooked in the stairwell. And I think it's supposed to be that they're spooked by the homeless man, not the monster. Okay. But they do pop up again, like right after they get spooked. And then like you see the cops talking to the kids. But that's the only time you see them. Oh, yeah. I must have looked away because I didn't (laughs) catch that at all. It's quick. But Conrad, so what else about this film do you think not holds up? I mean, obviously we get the representation. I'm kind of hammering on the special effects because I feel like that's where you're going. Yeah. Yes. So the early CGI, you can kind of forgive. And maybe Peter Hyams dialing down the brightness on his cinematography Mm -hmm. helps out here because the monster is hidden when it's full body and it's running around. You can't see it very well. It's just a shape, Mm. which kind of works. And Stan Winston's monster design... Well, I don't think it was his. I think it was Crash McCreary who came up with the design. Mm -hmm. But the effects from the Stan Winston house, are, you know, they're pretty good. But it's clearly a guy in a giant hunk of rubber. And it's clearly something that they had a lot of trouble trying to operate. Mm. I read horror stories about how difficult it was to work in that suit. I actually, I love it in close-ups. I think it looks great. But the problem is, like, you don't really see any of this monster. I think I clocked it, like, until the 80-minute mark. Like, that's where you get, like, a full shot of it. Up until then, it's just like, oh, a claw coming out to grab the guard. It's uh, maybe a look at its eye. And I'm just watching it. I'm like, well, you're not Jaws, buddy. So just show us the monster. I do agree that the CGI hasn't aged well. And I, I do think that's why the part of the reason why the film is so dark. But of course, as we've discussed, like the issue is then you just can't see what's happening. The only time that I was like, oh, this looks like shit 
is the climax. I actually think the climax was still fine. It's when the SWAT guys are lowering themselves on the rope mm-hmm. and it comes out and like peeks its head out through like the skylight and like it's the helicopter light just shining on this CGI creation and it just looks like a cartoon. Yeah. I thought the CGI was actually amazing. I thought the monster looked really great. And mm-hmm. I would actually agree with Joe. The worst part was when he blows up. Oh. Then you see just the worst CGI bits of flesh flying around. And it just it's very Jaws 3D when that shark blows up. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) I mean, I think it's part of the struggle for films at this time where we're seeing films with surprisingly large budgets. This film has a big budget, all things considered. It's apparently either 40 or 60 million dollars. I'm wondering if it was 40 for production and then it was like an additional 20 for marketing. But holy fuck. Mm. Yeah, like we had Crawl, which was a great creature feature late last year, and it was nine million dollars. So we're talking a minimum of four times the budget for this 90s film starring, as you suggested, Daniel, zero people of note. (laughs) Well, you have to count inflation, though, because if it was a 40 million dollar budget in 97, that's more like $80 million today. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Like, the budget is kind of astronomical, but you can tell a big struggle that the films of this period are having is that they've got the precursors to good FX work, but it's not quite there. So they're trying to push the boundaries of what they can accomplish. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, what we end up with is this uncomfortable mixture of practical effects, which I think we all agree actually look pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, it sounds like it's a struggle but it looks good on camera. And then whenever we have to transition to the terrible FX work, you're like, I can see what you're going for, but it's really not working. And in particular, for our purposes, it does not age well. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And crucially, it's not scary. Mm. I find the stuff that happens down in the tunnels when they go down with the dogs, I find particularly effective. Not the homeless man who jumps at them with uh, an mm. axe. I was like, uh, no. And, no. <laughs> Again, movie, let's maybe not with these kinds of representations. (laughs) (laughs) I know they shoot him 15 times, but luckily afterwards we find out that he was not only a double rapist, but also uh, wanted for murder. Yes. Just convenient. So it was lucky that they gunned him down almost. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God. Really, this movie is just killing all of the bad guys. Oh, yes. Well, and, and see, that's the thing, though. I really do think that you can cut out some of this police procedural stuff in the middle of the movie. Get rid of this homeless guy bullshit. Like, I don't need any of that. You make this a good, like, 90 minutes, I think you fix this film, like, sevenfold. Mm. I would be inclined to agree, but then we would lose that great scene where D'Augusta gets the phone call from the mayor, and the mayor just keeps talking about his wife's tits and how... (laughs) If they don't get to go to this party, his wife's tits. And I joke because it's such a ridiculous thing for someone to say to someone they've never met. Mm. But I do like the idea that the people who work in this museum, as well as the political people who are attending this party, are really imposing their will on a police investigation where they're saying, I actually don't care who you catch. You just need to solve this so that we can have our black tie affair. Mm. And I think there's an interesting political commentary there. That's Linda Hunt being the mayor from Jaws. Like, that's what this entire thing is. But it's a museum (laughs) instead of, like, a whole town's, like, income for the summer. (laughs) Yeah, in that case, it was catch any fish and we'll blame that. In this one, it's shoot any homeless person and it'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But I'm never really disappointed if a creature feature doesn't terrify me because... I'm going into a creature feature to have fun. I'm trying to think of one that actually scared me. Like, I actually think Alligator, as a kid, did scare me, um, especially when that kid gets swallowed whole. Ah, so good. It's great. But I just go for cheesy fun. Mm. That's why those lines, like... 
did you ever see my wife's cleavage? It's in all the papers. Like th- that. Like <laughs> I was like, okay, cool. More of that, please. It almost plays better <laughs> as a, a horror comedy, but the comedy really stops at a certain point. I think once the exhibition space is trampled, which to me is the absolute best scene in this entire film, I love watching a large mass of people try to cram into a revolving door and just seeing a very attractive 90s blonde woman get a face full of blood as <laughs> in a revolving door i was so, like that's fucking fantastic <laughs> like, i mean you, you watch horror movies all the time when you see like a new death it's like ooh. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I notice is that Peter Hyams doesn't appear to be all that comfortable staging scare scenes, just in terms of whether or not they're effective Mm. for jaded people who've watched a lot of horror movies as we (laughs) are. None of them actually made me jump particularly. I mean, you've got the cat jumping out, which is just so tired at this point. Uh, The hand grabbing the foot on the stairs. And that whole sequence where the cleaning lady is wheezing and sounding like the monster because she's wheezing so much and it turns out she's just asthmatic and then has the gall because I'm asthmatic myself and it pisses me off whenever I see somebody in a movie use an inhaler wrong oh no ah. yeah you just suck it in and blow it straight back out again it's like you've got to hold it in there it's not going to do anything if you just blow it straight <laughs> out what are you doing but it happens in every movie I watch it's my small hill to die on I'm afraid they need an asthma consultant on all these movies they do because there's always an asthmatic child in there somewhere oh i was gonna say panic room must be your absolute favorite film then <laughs> yeah they're pretty accurate with that one actually <laughs> that's because it's fincher because fincher is like i'm getting this shit right mm. i will say though the cat scare i totally noted that because i was like there's a fucking cat scare in 1997 like why is this happening <laughs> i have to believe and I'm, I'm gonna give the film the benefit of the doubt that that was like a very conscious decision to be like look we're doing like some stupid 80s horror shit in 1997 it's gonna be fun but like you said, Joe, yeah, the humor kind of stops at a point. Like, I, I think the climax of this movie is fucking fantastic. I like, from the moment when it's like after wheelchair man dies, like I think it's a total blast. Mm. But yeah, it's weird that you know we have like so much cheese in the first act and like cliches, and then it kind of like doesn't embrace that as the film goes on. So it feels a little bit jarring to me, but I still think it's fun. Yeah, <laughs> and and all the comedy also comes from all the minor characters as well. So right. the minor characters almost become more likable than the main characters. <laughs> We've got the running joke with the two police officers complaining about coffee, mm-hmm. <laughs> saying like, "I like espresso." I wrote Have that you down tried too. a latte? <laughs> this coffee's bitter. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, those two deserve their own spinoff where they just have like, a love affair. <laughs> and then it ends in disaster at this unfortunate museum. <laughs> but that's the thing, though, right? It's like that's something that could have been edited out because you don't need yeah. that. Mm. For some reason, Haim and the editor thought, no, you know what? We want that. Let's keep it. It's funny, <laughs> but is it, like, needed? I don't know. Well, and even the idea that, you know, Dr. Green is in competition with Greg Lee about this whole grant, at the end of the day, it comes to nothing because it's not like she's even there to witness his comeuppance, right? Mm. Um, okay. No. Can we move to the kills in this movie? Mm, by all means. So, A, with that fucker, I was really mad that we... I mean, he gets a death. Actually, I do think that this shot is framed really well, where he, like, thinks the monster's got him, but it doesn't, and he looks up, and he's, like, facing a mirror, and you yeah. just see the jaws of the monster, like, in the mirror, and it's great, but then he gets killed off screen, and I was like, mm. damn it, movie. Mm. He should have had the death 
of the SWAT guy who's like yeah. held in front of the camera for like yes. I want to say ten seconds before he gets decapitated. Yeah, yeah. in one unflinching shot that's continuous, <laughs> which is quite ambitious for 1997. They don't right. quite pull it off because it gets a bit funky when it transitions to the digital double, but still, mm-hmm. yeah, pretty ballsy for 97. Mm. I feel like that's actually an iconic shot. Like for me, the film kicks in the minute that the exhibition goes awry and the and the people stampede out the whole SWAT team coming down. I appreciate what you're saying, Conrad. I don't think it's scary because I think it's actually shot more like an action film. Mm. And I think that's more of Heim's strength. If we want to call yeah. it that, maybe if we're being generous. Yeah, if he's coming off of Time Cop, then I'm sure that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> I've always found with creature features, though, they are a lot more action than horror. And so for me, being kind of late in the horror game to get into horror, creature features were always my sort of gateway horror because mm. they were never really that scary. I agree with you. I think a lot of the power of creature features comes from if you are afraid of the creature already. So, like, I think the most effective one for me, even as a kid, and I think it would still bother me today, I haven't seen it in a while, would be arachnophobia. Right. Mm. And that's a horror comedy, but there are some really chilling, terrifying moments in that movie. And the climax does get really action-y, you know, when he's, like, fucking playing softball with the spider. I mean, I imagine (laughs) if someone is scared of snakes, maybe Anaconda might scare them. Jaws, Deep Blue Sea, I think, has scary moments if you're afraid of sharks. But Mm. normally, yeah, you're right. But that's the thing is, like, so much of Creature Features is leaning into comedy. I mean, look at fucking Piranha, any version of Piranha, really. It's all yeah. like, there's so much comedy because it's like, this would never happen in real life. But with this movie, mm. we have this mythical chimera creature, the Kothaga, and yeah, it doesn't lend itself to horror very much. Yeah, I think the whole insect part of it does, kind of. I feel mm-hmm. like if people were afraid of giant spider, lion, lizard things, <laughs> then <laughs> <laughs> they try and get everything in there. Yeah, they really do. We never really get a good look at this one to see what really makes it. Also, the face is more like a saber-toothed tiger on this thing. I think they say that they modeled the face design on a spider. Yeah, that makes sense. It actually reminded me of um, the bear creature in Annihilation. Yeah, oh, it does. Right. Interesting. Because yeah. of the wheezing as well. With yeah. The having that, that sort of scream. Oh my God. Sound. Fucking yeah. Alex Garland is like, you guys, I just saw this movie Relic. Okay, we're going to have this scene. <laughs> <laughs> I think he definitely made it scarier than Peter Hyams did. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> now it's time for Random Trivia. So, Dan, what fascinating piece of trivia did you find moulding on the underside of an Amazonian leaf today? <laughs> well, did you know the uh, the giant monster head gateway to the Superstition exhibition uh, was actually a replica of the Orcus Mouthgate at Paco del Monstri, which translates mm. to Park of Monsters in Bomazzo in Italy. Oh. So the garden was actually created during the 16th century and features many grotesque sculptures mm. in the property. So yes. very fitting, I guess. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, fitting for the movie, but not necessarily for that exhibition. <laughs> <laughs> for superstition, yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> well, that's our trivia. I did want to commend the climax of this film. I think that the bit when it's like facing down with her, there is one thing I hate 
and it's when some person has turned into a monster and they're killing everybody. But then there's that one person when they come face to face, they hesitate because they're like, oh, my humanity is coming back and I recognize you and I'm not going to kill you just yet because I'm going to give you enough time to escape my clutches. Hmm. I don't love that trope. Hmm. What if it involves a tongue licking a boob? <laughs> but I, I, I thought this was staged very well I thought it was really cool like the shots from like behind the creature's jaw so you like see her face through its open mouth mm. I think that's really great and the tongue which did not need to be CGI is right. really cool yeah yeah. I like the mild subversion where you think oh she's completely fucked she's backed herself like an idiot into this corner where she is totally <laughs> trapped and actually it's revealed oh no it's actually all part of her plan the only thing that I did not like and this is me coming across like the stodgy old man that some people seem to think I am <laughs> looking at you, Mr. Thurman. <laughs> I could not help but think about how expensive the damage that she does here would be. Like, because oh, <laughs> we're told early on, like, this is part of the collection and you don't get to see most of these things. They're priceless artifacts and she's just smashing things. She's yes. blowing shit up. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, woman, these are things that cannot be recovered <laughs> no and this is all foreshadowed in the first act of the movie anyway during the period where it's lurching between unsuccessful suspense scenes and really clunky exposition when margot is showing Degosta around this inventory he out of nowhere says doesn't look like a good place to light a match yeah. which is Less than subtle foreshadowing. Right. No, we, we have Chekhov's flame and Chekhov's maceration tank, mm. which when that happened, I would no at the end when they're like, oh, there's someone in here. I was like, she's really fucking lucky that yeah. they found her in that maceration tank. Yeah. <laughs> there's an alternative cut of this film where she just dies in that tank because no one ever found her. It's just a little black dress and that's it. But I will say that that fucking exposition, all of the science talk, I remember not oh. really understanding it when, when I saw it the yeah. first time and watching it last night. I was like, wait, what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> they come back to that well just a couple times too many where you're like, I don't need her to test the genetic breakdown of this creature a fifth time, please. <laughs> yeah, and all to reveal that the monster is the anthropologist from the beginning and it's just been so long since you've thought about him that you just don't care. Yeah, I did feel like there was a lot of stuff that they could have put in there. They could have had more of that guy at the start because you just see him drink the thing. And then we forget about him. <laughs> yeah, we forget about him. And then the big reveal that he's the chimera, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. That's cool, I guess. <laughs> like, we're supposed to believe that he died in the boat. Like, he's one of the bodies in the yeah. boat. Sure. You know, yeah, it, it definitely feels like a missed opportunity because even, mm. let's say he makes it back to Chicago and maybe he morphs when he's at the museum and, like, we get, like, a really good moment of body horror of this transformation. Mm. Like, yeah, I would have loved to see that. But, yeah, the film seems to think that the reveal that it's him is, <laughs> like, a really good twist. But I'm wondering if it plays better in the book. Mm. Right, I couldn't help right. but think this would have been a more successful twist if it had been revealed to be Greg, her nemesis for the grant that she's had this showdown with, and she gets to exact a little bit of revenge, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it just seems to come up very late on and serve no purpose, unless it's the reason why he pauses and licks her boobs at the end. Hmm. But you don't get the sense that there's any love lost between these two characters earlier on, because all she does is criticise him behind yeah. her back and say his work is worthless. Yeah. Hmm. So I don't get the sense that there's going to be a great <laughs> relationship going on there. But that makes her look like really fucking cunty, 
And like, <laughs> if we had more time with him to know that he was an asshole, then that would make more sense. But we don't. Yes. All we know is that he's right. at a tribe, he drinks a, a soup, and then he's gone and becomes a monster. So he's kind of a tragic figure in this film, except for what she tells us about him. And we're just supposed to go with that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Which is already a little tough to believe because she's so standoffish with everyone. <laughs> yeah, there's that scene where she's just met Degosta and she introduces herself as an evolutionary biologist and he asks, are we still evolving? Mm-hmm. And she looks at him and says, some of us. <laughs> I didn't catch that. Where's that come from? What's he done to deserve that? He is impeding her work. Every penny counts. She's got to get back to that damn lab. And her staff. Her staff is gonna like be out of a job. I will say that moment though, where her staff brings up the skeleton and asks if they can go home. Yeah, I do like that. I'm like, okay, you know what? It sounds like if you get on her good side, she's actually a lot of fun. Mm. It's just if you're like on the wrong side of her science or maybe if you have a penis she's gonna be like get out of my face <laughs> i did appreciate that they don't do a romance thing with her and degosta yes. oh thank god but man, maybe they're trying to imply that she's a lesbian or just like she has no sexual characteristics at all right because like, she's a female character with career ambition and therefore right. is unfuckable exactly <laughs> despite the fact that she looks like penelope ann miller and is fuckable as Fuck. <laughs> See, I just kept calling her like low grade Gillian Anderson because that's like what she looked like to me. <laughs> yeah, there is an X Files vibe going on here because you mm-hmm. have the guy who's really into superstition and clings on to his magic bullet. Yes, and you have the scientist who's all about the science, all business. Yeah, yes, and poo poo's superstition to the point where she would just run anybody down even before she's met them. <laughs> so they're on a collision course right from the get go because they're single defining characteristic is directly opposed to the other absolutely mm. i appreciate the vibe that they have with one another though yeah i i thought it was good i i thought it was against the grain of typical 90s action the guy gets the girl every time even though there's zero chemistry whatsoever he's just so boring guys like i I could not give two shits about Degosta. He's just in a completely separate, like, CSI movie, and I am not having it. I mean, I was just living for Clayton Rohner, my 80s heartthrob from April Fool's Day, turning up as, like, this second-in-command detective who just gets ordered around the entire movie. Again, like, this movie, I think, has aspirations of buddy copness. Mm. We've got two different pairs of buddy cop, and then, of course, we end up with an X-Files model instead. Yeah. Mm And he's only there because he was engaged to Miyasara at the time, and Miyasara had just been in Time Cop for Peter Hyams. Oh, right. Right. Yes. Yes. There we go. Uh, Hollywood nepotism. (laughs) Well, one thing we often touch on is uh, some of the other production elements, such as music and sound. I don't know, Dan, if you had any comments on the sound design of this movie. I mean, I I appreciated that the monster sounded unique, you know, had the old man wheezing um, sound (laughs) of it. I mean, I appreciated that. It was something different. Uh, I feel like all monster movies now, all aliens and monsters click for some reason. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I like that, though. I mean, I like the clicking, but it's, it's become, like, cliche. I was like, oh, yes. Yes. It's a given. <laughs> did you like the score? I did. I really did like the score. 
I mean, it's cheesy, but I, I enjoyed it. I recognized the name. The composer is John Debney, and I was like, why does that sound so familiar to me? He also did the scores for Hocus Pocus, and I Know mm. What You Did Last Summer, and those are two scores that I actually adore. Yeah, right. Yeah, during the actions, especially the climax when Margot was like running away, like I thought that the score mm. was actually really, really good when it wasn't overshadowed by all the loud things happening on screen. Yeah, <laughs> it feels appropriately grand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a big orchestral score. I mean, for me, John Debney tends to be the guy you go to when you can't get Jerry Goldsmith. Oh, <laughs> he's sort of <laughs> one of those second tier big orchestra guys like Bruce Broughton. Yeah, that, you know, when you can't get James Horner, Jerry Goldsmith. John Williams, you just step down to John Debney or Bruce Broughton and get them to do something instead. <laughs> but you're right. It is very grand, though. You know, it's definitely more bombastic than I expected a film like this to be with its score. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. In terms of 90s movies, I do feel like this movie isn't very 90s. Like, Mm-mm. if this was a true 90s movie, all the protagonists would be teenagers. Right. And mm-hmm. there would be, like, a Blink-182 song every two seconds. Like, oh, gosh. It didn't <laughs> scream 90s and because of the score I felt like it dates better Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah, that is true. It, it's weird to think that this film came out like the same year as Scream 2. Mm. It almost feels a little like, shouldn't this have come out in 1994? Yeah. Oh, that's actually interesting too. Like, think about this. This opens a month after Scream. Oh, wow. Mm. It opened in the number one spot, but then didn't make its money back because it made like $36 million or something on its, you know, maybe $40 million budget. Mm. Right. Wow. But, but, you know, Scream stays in like the top 10 for three months and the relic just disappears Mm. i think you mean it (gasps) (gasps) (laughs) it doesn't click trace (laughs) Uh, conrad you've mentioned this is a bbc production how is this a bbc production yeah the production is really odd i don't know why the british broadcasting corporation suddenly thought in the 90s you know what we should do with taxpayer money (laughs) we should make a b-grade monster movie in chicago directed by peter hyams i have no idea how that happened Happened, but as a result, it's on the BBC iPlayer streaming service. Fantastic. 24-7, 365 days a year. So <laughs> was not right. difficult for me to get hold of. And it meant that I could replay Penelope Ann Miller screeching at crime scenes over and over again <laughs> to my heart's content. I am telling y'all right now, like that moment is just so fucking funny. I don't even... <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, like, if you haven't watched this movie for some reason, just go and watch that clip because it's just hilarious. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh. <laughs> I'm just very excited that when this episode drops, all of a sudden the BBC player is going to get this huge spike in, like, what is happening? Why is everyone watching The Relic of all things? <laughs> yeah, it's not contagion this week, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Mobley Awards. Natural History Museums aren't for everyone, but the Mobley Awards are. It's where we nominate our favourite fiery parts of the film in a number of evolutionary aberrant categories. Best quote. Oh, there's so many to pick from, so I'm going to steal the good one. I'm going to go to everyone's favorite mouthy coroner and I'm going to steal just one because she has two great lines. Don't you just hate someone who only takes head and never gives it? (laughs) Woman after my own heart. Y'all go next because I have a couple and I I don't want to repeat one. You go first, Dan. D'Augusta... Yeah, he was kind of annoying and and boring, but I thought he had some really great quotes. There's one where he's talking to 
one of the other detectives that's trying to shut down the whole investigation or something, and he says, hey, something's wrong. We got a homeless ex-con who gets his jollies from ripping out people's hypothalamuses. What's he doing? <laughs> Starting a hypothalamus collection? <laughs> that was so one good. of my <laughs> <laughs> But he's only had the act like, what's he doing? Starting a hypothalamus collection? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> he's now from New Jersey. <laughs> We've noted the cleavage line on a coffee line, so I have one left. And it is when, in the beginning, during the My Staff Will Lose Their Jobs, and she tells Mr. Lee, you really are a gerbil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone is like, ooh, snap, what a mic drop. <laughs> I just, I was like, what? What? I've never heard that before. Best hair or costume. Okay, so one is welcome back to the 90s, folks, where men wear absolutely ginormous clothes that could fit two people. So I'm going to call out (laughs) Degustus' enormous trench coat that he's wearing in this film. He could be a flasher (laughs) or a police detective. Mm. You decide. (laughs) And the other costume that I quite liked was Mrs. Blaisdell's golden dress, which we barely get to see because, of course, she's always being hidden by her husband. So our best look at it is when she is sitting there in the wake of the first monster attack and she's just getting poured on by the sprinkler system. And you're just like, this poor old woman with her cane and her expensive as hell gold dress just sitting (laughs) in the rain. So sad. Yeah. (laughs) For me, it has to be Linda Hunt's extremely angular bob and fringe. (laughs) It's clearly the inspiration for Edna Mode in The Incredibles. Mm -hmm. It's just an incredible look. And I do like her performance in this movie. Mm. I mean, she's contributed a couple of really great, iconic performances in Mm sci-fi and fantasy and horror. So she's in Dune as well. And she's great in that as well. Mm. So I really like Linda Hunt. Yeah, she's such a striking figure. Yeah. Most 90s moment. I'll go first because I feel like it's going to be the same answer for everybody. But mine is the all of the computer technology. Yeah. Mm. I do like the sound effect of when the computer program stops running and it's a car crash or glass breaking. Yeah, car crash. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Custom themes on Windows. <laughs> Remember those. So I can go next. I actually had quite a few 90s feeling moments. So the emphasis on lines like butt wipe or the latte versus espresso discussion as though yeah. this is the height of coffee drinking. Oh, the fact yeah. that the the antagonist police officer is called a rent-a-cop because he works for the museum and not for the force. Mm. For me, I thought that the most 90s thing about this film is the fact that the protagonist is a scientist. It felt to me as though during the 80s, there were always hard-bitten cops and buff bodybuilders who Mm. who are just being shoehorned into leading roles Mm -hmm. as army men or ex-army men that were just too hard for the army, that kind of thing. Whereas in the 90s, all of a sudden, it's scientists. You get that in Jurassic Park, Twister, Contact, Godzilla. Practically everything in the 90s was all people that were all about the science and not the evil corporations that were trying to exploit them for Mm. money. And that's what we have here again Mm -hmm. as well. It's so true. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Science. 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 
<laughs> Most cliched horror moment. I'll get in there first. The fucking cat scare. Yeah. Uh. It's only eight minutes into the movie and out comes this cat and it's on a ship that's been abandoned in a lake for eight months. Um, How does it get there? Okay, no, I looked at a map because I was like, okay, they're going from South America and they pull into Lake Michigan on Chicago, mm. in Chicago. And I was like, is there a way for this boat to... I think there is. I think they have to go through New York and there's like a bay and a river and it takes you all the way through these great lakes. But I really wasn't seeing a path. So I was really confused. <laughs> I think this is where we can understand how the film was originally meant to be set in New York, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. So my biggest cliche was the fact that our, uh, the first person who dies is a black character who exists um, only to be murdered. Yes. Mm. yes. I had a couple. So uh, I I had Margot doing research on the computer and reading her findings out loud to no one but oh, herself. That killed me. <laughs> I was so annoyed. <laughs> Margot deciding to walk through the museum by herself with all the lights turned out. That's the asthma scene. Right. And, okay, this is one that may not be obvious, but it always bothers me. It's when it's the two cops, the one sitting at the computer screen, and the guy walks up behind him and goes, Hey, buddy, did you hear that? And his head that's already been decapitated has been placed back on his head so that mm -hmm. way when the cop touches him, the head falls off. Yeah. And, like, so the Kotha guy yeah. decapitated him, got his brain, and then... Put that thing right back Put on it there. Back. Put it back. Yeah, it's got a sense of yeah. humor. Without wheezing, causing a kerfuffle, the guy didn't <laughs> scream. It's amazing compared yeah. to the rest of the kill scenes. Silent as the grave. The thing is also the size of a rhinoceros. How did it fit through the door? <laughs> <laughs> Favorite scene. Mine is that mass evacuation that initiates the lockdown. I just think it's great. It's the fact that it comes early enough in the film to really kick things off is part of the reason why this film is so memorable to me. Mm. And mine is the face down between the Kothaga and Margot with the, you know, the licking. Yeah, mine too. The climax. Mm. Yeah. yeah. You guys just love your tits, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love to lick them titties. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to be an outlier. My favourite's actually the scene with the uh, morbid mortician Matilda. Ah, yes. Oh, yeah. Who, yeah, makes ridiculous um, blowjob gags while she's examining a headless body. But my favourite part of it has to be the part where she describes the function of the pituitary gland and then turns to one of her medical colleagues <laughs> and says, Don't you agree, Fred? And he says yes, as as though she's just expounded on some great theory <laughs> or yeah. a diagnosis, rather than describing something that's taught to high schoolers. It's just yeah. bizarre. Best special, special effect. effect. As impressive as the monster is, I actually went with the security guard's head. I thought that they they, mm. they show that yeah. thing a lot, and like mm -hmm. I actually thought it was a really well done severed head, and it wasn't like a clean cut. You know, it looked like it had been ripped off, like at the exit yeah. wound, and it was just like I really liked it. Yeah, yeah, the practical stuff in this movie is good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for me, that's actually where I'm going to go, which is uh, when we're seeing the creature. I like the scene where it kind of falls through the skylight near the end and the climax. Mm. I feel like you get a really good sense of how big it is and also how heavy it is. Like it has a weight to it as a creature mm. and it's a big creature. Like it's not something tiny like we're normally used to seeing in creature features. So it's like, yeah, we've got 
the shark from Jaws, and then we've got this thing in terms of scope. Mm, yeah. Although it does highlight something that Ebert pointed out in his review, actually, is that this monster gets around because in consecutive scenes, it's terrifying socialites in a half-submerged tunnel, terrifying Penelope Ann Miller in a cellar, mm -hmm killing SWAT team members inside an exhibition yeah. space and then crashing through the roof in another exhibition space, Batman style, as though it's going to rescue Kim Basinger. I was yeah. confused by the water too, because it's underwater when it's killing people. Cause it just, it doesn't, that, that other cliche thing where it's like people just getting pulled underwater. Yeah. yeah. And it's so big, it, they would have had to step on it to get by it. And I don't think the water is that deep. So it has yeah. to like, like flatten its entire body and like crawl on the ground under the water. 100%. Like it, the water is not deep and we know this because Linda Hunt's head is still above the surface. <laughs> yeah, for me, it's the scene where the uh, SWAT team member gets his head pulled off in a yes. one continuous shot. It's yeah. a bit funky, but it's a signature shot and it sort of hints towards the kind of combination of practical and CGI that I think works best where one hands off to the other. It's just mm -hmm. they couldn't quite pull it off here, but I still think it's quite an achievement. Yeah. Favorite sound effect. I mean, it's just it's pretty obvious the the creature wheezing. I guess yes. that's <laughs> that's my pick as well. I'm gonna go different. Mine's the inhaler. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of unbelievable <laughs> that that poor janitor lady, her asthma is so bad that she sounds like Linda Blair gargling on split pea soup. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, at least they didn't have the monster come out and kill her because that's just another person of color who just gets a terrible death. Yeah. yeah. Probably just thought it was a mating call or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. What if that was what it was and then it tried to have sex with her? I mean, we don't know. We never see her again. Maybe she's hidden somewhere down in the basement. <laughs> Most funniest moment. Mine's Margot walking in on that damn severed head yeah. and just screaming and like That's what I wrote full too. on like 1960s, like Tippi Hedren, like hands on her face, like, ah! <laughs> So I have a, a funniest option, but it's like funny, not funny, haha, which is the fact that Degusta doesn't recognize, he doesn't want to speak to her until the police officer lady says, this is Dr. Green. Like he just gives her this look like, oh, you can't be the person I'm meant to speak to because you're a lady and I'm supposed to be mm. speaking to a doctor. <laughs> mm. <laughs> like, yes, this is feminism in the mid-90s. Good old yeah. casual sexism. That's always fun. <laughs> yeah. My funniest moment is a kind of a an honourable mention next to Margot. Nothing can beat Margot's reaction to dead bodies, but I still think the SWAT team member who, after his friend who's been repelled down into the exhibition space oh. and starts screaming because he's seen all of his friends being murdered, gets pulled back up and suddenly goes strangely silent as he gets mm -hmm. to the uh, brim of the skylight. But when they pull him up, his legs are missing because the monster's bitten half of him off. Yes. And his SWAT team member arches back, looks up at the sky and screams, no! Oh, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> and the best thing is, is you know that that was probably this guy's big breakthrough. And he was like, I'm going to get into the Screen Actors Guild with this performance. <laughs> and that's our Moobly Awards. <laughs> yeah.
Okay, we're back. Uh, should the relic be freed from the Chicago Museum to feast on everyone's hypothalamuses, or should it be thrown down <laughs> into the flooded basement and flushed down the oubliette to be spoken of no more? <laughs> Guys, <laughs> what were your final thoughts on the relic? I think it's still super fun. Like, it's definitely, like, underseen. It's, uh, but... I think it's found an audience recently, and I, it, despite its over, like its long running time, I mean, again, I think you should trim fifteen minutes in this movie. I think it's it would help it like a lot, bit better lighting. But honestly, just in terms of the effects of the of the nineteen ninety seven, like I think it's very impressive, and I I would absolutely say save it. Like it's so mm. fun. Yeah, I would also save it. Like Trace said, this did drop a little bit under a more discerning eye, but I still think it has a bunch of really fun set pieces. You know, we we poke fun at them, but I do like the relationship between Tom Sizemore and Penelope Ann Miller. And yeah, I mean, in terms of a creature feature, it's got really good practical effects, a little bit of dodgy CGI, but overall, this is just a really fun film. So I say release it. Yeah, I agree with both of you guys. I think it's, it's just a fun movie. And although, yeah, the main protagonists are not not the greatest most endearing characters but i didn't hate them and all the visual effects i i think they age really well i didn't think the cgi was that dodgy uh, probably covered by the dark lighting uh, and yeah it's just a fun movie and that last act is just a joy to witness like i i was kind of at a point, especially with the the last final scene, I felt like jumping up and punching the air. It was just fun. Yeah. I enjoyed it. <laughs> it's a very satisfying ending. Yeah. I don't know. It's so gratifying. I mean, I have a slightly different view. I, I'm not as enthusiastic as you guys. I think mm-hmm. there are elements of it that have not aged well. I think the representation of an Asian American is not great. Yeah. And the representation of, of a black American is not great. Mm. Um, I don't think Penelope Ann Miller's character does too badly out of it, but she's still not particularly likable. And I find... Um, the main male character just dull. Um, <laughs> and these scares aren't terribly scary. The exposition's clunky. The characters just make one terrible decision after another. It's dark. And yeah, I just kept thinking to myself, this is pretty dumb. But I, I didn't hate it. This is the thing. I, I mm. don't sort of feel my my sort of ire rising as I'm watching the movie. I never want to turn it off. I still kind of enjoy watching it. And I kind of remember as a teenager it being a bit of a guilty pleasure mm. in that I knew that it was a B movie and it wasn't great, but I still kind of liked it. So I, I guess I'll give it a pass, but I'm more sort of, eh, I don't know. I kind of right. think it's forgettable for a lot of people. And I think probably that that's why it's for those reasons. It's because it's it's not great, but it's it's okay. Do you like creature features normally? I do like creature features, but and this one has a great creature in it. I just wish I could see it more. Yeah. <laughs> Fair. But I'm outvoted by you three, so yes. yeah. I guess that means we're letting it go. Oh my Yay. god, that's the benefit of having four people. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Your sample size is polluted, essentially. <laughs> so let's let that movie go to stampede through walls. Yes. Oh my god, we're gonna lose the job. 
<laughs> well, Trace and Joe, it's been amazing having you on the show with us today. Yes. Thanks so much for joining us and sharing so many great insights and good laughs about this movie. Uh, where can our listeners find you and follow you and hear more from you? Yeah, so uh, you can find, I mean, for horror queers, I mean, we're pretty much everywhere. You can see uh, our, all of our articles and stuff on Bloody Disgusting. Um, for socials, it's at Horror Queers everywhere, um, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We have a, a Horror Queers page, and we also have a group where a, a lot of our listeners go, and, you know, they keep in touch, and they chat, and they have a lot of discussions. It's um, really fun. We have new episodes that come out every Wednesday, and you can get those anywhere you get to your podcast. And if you like what you heard us talking about and you want to hear us trash talk even more movies, we also do have a Patreon, which is just patreon.com slash horrorqueers. Yeah, and yes, lots nice. of goodies at that uh, at different rates and prices and different content for each price. It's real fun, we think. You know, give us your money. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Traced Thurman. That's my first name, last name with a D in the middle. And I am at B Storm My Remote, and that is the letter B. Right. Yes. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment to review and subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps us out in terms of getting new listeners on board. And like Trace said, we also love money. So <laughs> if you would like to help us even more, Patreon, we have an account. For $1, you get to nominate a film that we may cover on a future episode. And for $5, you get access to all that bonus stuff. Mm, there's some tasty stuff in there, including probably our biggest celebrity interview that we've had so far coming up in the next month. I can't wait. Yeah, it's <laughs> an exciting one. And what's exciting coming up next episode, Conrad? What film are we doing? Well, we thought we'd shift gears back into my favourite decade, ah. so we will be watching the 1986 American comedy horror film... Vamp. Oh, I've never heard of this. <laughs> Have you not? I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. So I think I've missed out on what could quite likely be a fabulous piece of 80s cheese. Great. It's directed by Richard Wenk. And it stars Chris Makepeace, Sandy Barron, Robert Rustler, Dee Dee Pfeiffer, and Grace Jones. Oh, okay. Mm. <laughs> true 80s. Yeah. So this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to it. And we do have a guest joining us. We do have a guest, yes. So, And she suggested this movie to us. So, yeah, looking forward to talking to her about it. Yeah. Yes, we've been very lucky with guests recently, especially today. Thank you, Trace and Joe, again for being here. We've um, loved talking about this movie with yeah. you and uh, can highly recommend everyone check out your podcast and mm. your articles. It's all great stuff. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Until next time. Bye for now. Bye, guys. Bye. We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and don't come up the movie you'll be at. <laughs> <laughs>